0: This episode contains adult themes and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Oh, hey, hi. It's Crystal. Just sitting here thinking about you. I hope you're well. I'm okay. If you're wondering, I am okay. I am trying to take moments in my life on the daily to absorb the love around me, to seek the joy that I need to fulfill myself as a human being. We are living in a strange, weird world. It's full of uh, chaos and negativity and sorrow, and it's hard to know where to turn often. So I hope that you can be reminded today to take a moment for yourself and write down what brings you joy, what, what brings you connection to other people, and how you can foster that for yourself. Black Lives Matter, I'm just going to continue to say it, Black Lives Matter, I'm, I just, the, the, the division is going to, it's just going to be more division, that's what's going to happen, uh, that's where we're at, and it's okay that it's happening. It's good that it's happening and uh, I hope it gets all burnt to the ground completely so we can move on in a world where we can all feel joy more often and feel the love around us and give more love to the people that need it the most. I'm looking at you, QAnon people. You need love. Love. (laughs) Uh, It's really not funny. It's absolutely horrifying. But regardless, I'm here to tell you, take a moment for yourself. Try to figure out what brings you joy, what you need more of, and seek out those positive things and love everyone, no matter where they're from, who they are, love, 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 love. I wanted to really focus on love because this interview uh, with Joanne, my guest that's coming up here, is one of a kind. It's a little bit different and it has a positive twist. I had decided uh, when I'd heard about Joanne that I wanted to interview her because It's not about her personal trauma. This is about a person that is in their 80s that spent their entire lifetime focused on helping children, women deal with sexual abuse. She is a full on believer, a believer in a fighter, someone that developed programs one after another, after another, and dedicated their entire being just making the world a better place. Isn't that nice to hear? You know, when I first started this podcast, it was in February of this year, and I had no idea that we were going to be dealing with all the things that we are. And I understand that it's sometimes really hard to sign up for a story about other people's trauma when you're experiencing so much yourself. So I hope that this finds you surprised and maybe a little refreshed. Um, you get to hear what it was like for her from the beginning of her life, you know, her entire journey from her childhood uh, to now. And she just helped survivors. I mean, she opened up homes for teen moms. She was a nun throughout the 60s. She left in, like I think she said, 1971. She counseled women in New Guinea and helped the first woman in their entire country graduate from college. Uh, she was talking about sexual abuse with people when no one was even talking about it because back in the day, you just had to like literally sweep it under the rug and not talk about it. You know, uh, she did everything that she possibly could to make the world a better place. You know, she realized at one point that many children aren't going to go to a place to talk about their sexual abuse. So she started. Planting herself from within in in the schools, in the school systems. And um, some of her programs are still going today. She's an inspiration, an absolute inspiration, a firecracker, sassafras, Joanne. She's just got it, man. She's got everything. And, you know, re listening to this interview, I had a reflection of like, what am I doing? (laughs) What have I done? What's my story going to be when I'm 80, right? So it was extremely um, motivating and absolutely, I want to do more and I want to be more. And I hope that that's what you feel after you listen to this interview with Joanne. She's just one person and I can't tell you how many lives that she's touched. For Joanne, I picked a quote from Chadwick Bozeman because we lost his life this week. Um, and he said, everything that you fought for was not for yourself. It was for those that come after. I thought that was really relevant to the revolution that we are experiencing and also honoring the loss of him and the beautiful person that he was. And also honoring Joanne because it makes me tear up instantly to know that there was someone in the world in the 50s and in the 60s and in the 70s that had this calling to want to help survivors and to not hide from the truth and to be a truth teller and to just go out in the world and wave the sticks around and shake the trees and say this is happening and it's not okay. Because without people like Joanne fighting for us, uh, I don't know where we would be. I have no idea where we would be. And it, it took so many people like Joanne to make it better and to make it work. It was an honor to stand witness to Joanne's story. I am so grateful that I got to know her and to realize that that obstacle that she faced to know that these children, there were boys, there were teenagers, there were 19-year-old women, there were 20-year-olds, just, just this stuff was happening and no one was talking about it and no one knew what to do. They didn't even have PTSD diagnosed then. They had nothing. And she was, start, she was starting with an empty palette and, <laughs> and trying to figure out how to be better and how to make it work for these survivors. And she did it. And you get to hear all of it. So, as always, before you go into this podcast, keep your heart open, your mind open, and I love you. Thanks for listening.
1: I was born many, many years ago <laughs> in Eugene, Oregon. Oh,
0: you're an Oregonian. Yes,
1: so I am sort of an Oregonian in that my family traveled around a lot, but we st- I started in Oregon and I've ended up in
0: Oregon. Oh, interesting. Where else did you go?
1: Well, my dad was a highway engineer, so we moved every, when, when I was really young, we moved every six months or something in Oregon or Washington or I think Montana once, but anyway, mostly Oregon and Washington. And then Portland, Olympia, Portland. And then when I was an adult and I was working, I was in the Midwest and, you know, all kinds of places. Yeah, but
0: you're a Pacific Northwest.
1: But I am. I am a Pacific Northwest. (laughs) The rain does not bother me at all.
0: That's awesome. So um, when you were younger and you were traveling around, you said every six months you went to a different. For when I was
1: little, before little. the first grade, like I went oh. to three first grades. Mm-hmm. But then things kind of settled down, and I was in the, I was in Olympia for three years, and Portland for three years, and then back in Olympia. But basically, my dad got an office job, is what happened.
0: Oh, interesting. So then mm-hmm. you settled. So always settled down. Yeah, that's good. That's good for your childhood, especially. Yes, very
1: good community. That's right.
0: Yeah. So and I
1: don't have a lot of memories about that very very early childhood. I I have images. You know, I have things like a big field and playing such and such, but I think mostly even though this was a group of engineers families, I think mostly I was playing alone until mm. my sister came along 4 years later. Oh wow. So I think uh there was a lot of that very early kind of thing of learning how to survive and having imaginary friends and mm-hmm. doing all that kind of thing. And also exposing me to kind of my first uh, in intuitive world, my inner Ooh. world, you know, because I created things out of nothing yeah. and without the reality being there. Yeah.
0: yeah. And that's, for a kid, that's like, that's perfect.
1: Yeah. Well, it was for, perfect for me. Mm-hmm. I, I had a very caring family Hmm. you know it was very functional i remember once when i was in much much later when i was working and the big uh idea of dysfunctional families Mm -hmm. was rampant everything was dysfunctional
0: what year was this uh
1: i think i was probably it was probably 1980s somewhere in the 80s and um well, and probably in the 60s as well, but this this cartoon came out and it had a dysfunctional family thing on one side and functional family thing on the other and there was one person on the functional side.
0: Mm. And I thought,
1: I you know, just making fun, I think they were making fun, but I just thought, you know, that's the way I felt a lot growing up was that my family was so functional that then... You know, you're dealing with all kinds of things around what you deserve, what you should do differently, how do you treat the disadvantaged, Mm -hmm. because you are kind of privileged, basically. So you were told
0: that?
1: I believed that. I don't think I was told it. I just think that I knew how I was living, and I knew how a lot of my friends as I was growing up were living, and I just kept thinking, how come? And in those days, you know, divorce and things like that were just phenomenally traumatic, oh, yeah, not that they aren't now, but i I mean i as a little kid just thinking he doesn't have a dad or she doesn't have a mom, mom. you know, whereas I see kids now that clearly make an adjustment between a divorced couple, divorced right. parents, you know they know how to go back and forth because all their a lot of their friends are that way, right. but when I watched it, it was like that must be so hard. So of course I think a lot of empathy developed. And you think
0: that you were born with that kind of empathy?
1: I don't, that's a really a good question. We've thrown that around a lot. Are you born with empathy or do you acquire right. it later on? I, I don't know, I had a mother who reached out to any disadvantaged person that ever happened. So I mean from a very early age we had guests in for dinner and people, you know, and she was in... Because she was always a volunteer. My dad got made the income, and she did whatever she wanted to, and that was always working with disadvantaged kids in some capacity, volunteering. So I think I got that from a very early age, acquired it. Whether yeah, I was my example. With a, it wasn't, yeah. like,
0: told or preached. It was just like, this is how no, you No,
1: no, this is what you observed. This, yeah, and I think that has a lot to do with how deeply ingrained it is because i think it's easy if you're told that to be able to reject it later on Is oh. that was something my mother said and it was stupid and right you know.
0: but if you're shown it like all well the time. if you live it yeah, yeah if, you live if you live
1: it, it yeah. you it's a little and you're not and i wasn't even aware you know this is just who i was and i lived my life and whatever and i it's only looking back on it years and years later that i see that I think that was developed very early.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. So you have this glorious childhood and you graduate yeah. and you're in Oregon.
1: And I, I graduate. I have glorious except that I'm in a lot of schools yeah. and I leave friends a lot. Ugh. And the thing that happened with that was that friendships were never ending. I always thought I would see them again because I kept coming back to the same place. I went to Kenton grade school in Portland in the second, third, and fourth grade, and then again in the seventh grade. You know, so I had this image when I said goodbye to people that it was just temporary, and I still have that, is that I never think of anything as absolute because I always think it's going to come around again. So that was sort of the the difficulty and the the gift of, of being both you know yeah. so i graduated from kenton grade school and then i went to jefferson high school and of course at that time in the 50s this would have been 1955 wow. uh diversity was non-existent and um but i lived in north, north portland so i didn't know the difference i mean i grew up with you know <clears throat> with black black people and hispanic not not and 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 the other thing is is I didn't even know about Jewish people, for instance. Everybody just seemed like one big you know picture, and I mm. never thought of a, skin color was obvious, you know, but even that didn't have anything with me. It was like, I, I don't know what that means at that, but we had a black student body president at Jeff, you know, things like that that never happened anywhere else. So I think I was in high school in this little my my foster sister. Went to Jefferson.
0: State. You had a foster sister.
1: I have a couple of foster sisters because my mother's best friend was Sister Miriam Kathleen that ran Christie School for girls, for Christie School, not for girls, Christie School, and out at Merrillhurst, It's still there, and for most of kids. And of course, every time they would get when they would get to be high school age, they were they had to leave because this was a you know grade school. And so she would call and plead with my mother, and of course my mother would take these kids. Wow. So we had—I would we were pretty much my sister and I had a sister four years younger, and she and I were pretty much gone when she was doing that. It was sort of her new new family. But my foster sister was in Jefferson ten years later, and she was scared for her life. Oh wow! You know, in sometimes. So that's the switch from when I went. Then I. Went from there. I was going to go to, I was, well, I worked a year and then I was going to go, I wanted to go to Oregon State so I could major in secretarial science and be a good secretary and find a husband. <laughs> That's what you did in 1959. Yes. 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 So I went to, to Oregon State for two years and I discovered psychology. Mm which I wasn't taking, of course. I was taking, secret- I was taking typing and all those things. And, it, and my teachers were all telling me I would make a lousy secretary, but I didn't care. <laughs> and so I discovered not only psychology, but a teacher that was incredible, that taught oh, psychology. And so I took everything that she offered, and then I, I couldn't major in psych, because there wasn't liberal arts in Oregon State at the time. And so, and I had a crisis of my religion, actually. Oh. I was a Catholic, I was raised a Catholic, and I, by high, college, was total, totally nominal, you know, I didn't, I wasn't really very involved in my religion, but at Oregon State, I was in a sorority, and for some reason, we'd sit around and talk about religion, and I found myself arguing for Catholicism,
0: oh, I don't like know naturally. why. Like you just—that was your natural.
1: Yeah, outcome. my response to you know, to, I mean, it was a debate, and you were in college, and you needed to have something to say. You know, you yeah, needed to yeah, talk back. Yeah, of
0: course.
1: So I, of course, would argue, and Catholicism is what I knew, and so uh, especially the catechism, because I never went to a Catholic school. Right. I just went, but I I went to catechism, so. Anyway, I had this crisis around I'm in a field that I don't want to be in. I was engaged, however. And then my I broke my engagement our our engagement broke up over religion. Oh, wow. And then I yeah, so those were the things. So I thought I don't want to go back to Oregon state. I want to go somewhere where I can practice my religion and where I can do liberal arts, so I can do psych. So I went. I transferred in my junior year to Seattle University, with the Jesuits, because they were my favorite Catholic people, and I figured they were liberal enough. That and it was right after Vatican II. I don't mm-hmm. know if you know mm-hmm. all that stuff, but
0: I don't. But I know. What yeah, you're but talking about.
1: Vatican II when the church <laughs> changed a, a lot of the, the way people thought about things in the church in the Catholic church. So anyway, went to went to Seattle University. And my senior year at Seattle University, I we had to do we had to do retreats. We had to do one retreat a year, and I didn't want to do the retreat that they were going to give. So I did a private retreat on a weekend, and I had a calling to religious life in that retreat.
0: What kind of retreat was it? That so you, you're like a renegade. You're like, oh, these are the rules? Well, I'm not going to do that. No, so yeah, I'm and that's the, I was, my own needs.
1: that's the way I was most of my life is that's that awesome. as I look back on it, you know, I don't know if you know the psych test, the, um, the MMPI, and I was 489 on the scale, which is kind of delinquent, mm-hmm. you know, so I always had this pushing the limits, or at least, Questioning. I always questioned everything, I think, and I, you know, I just, and this, there was no question. I'd never been to a Catholic school. I knew Catholicism. I liked the Jesuits, but I mean, the Seattle U is pretty, you know, everybody goes to Seattle U, not just Catholics, and I...
0: And you're talking early 60s at this point?
1: And I'm talking, yes, let's see, I would, yes, yes so early late 50s
0: late 50s
1: because i graduated yeah i graduated from seattle university in 15 in, in wait a minute 59.
0: holy cats okay so you did a private retreat and what was it
1: oh it was some dumb thing in a convent somewhere with i mean it didn't have anything to do with I didn't even. I just had books. You know, it wasn't like directed. I just had books, and I would read. And for some reason, I, and for whatever, for every reason, I had this thing about religious life. And I had a a Jesuit friend who worked at Villa Saint Rose, which I think is Rosemont. Was Rosemont? It anyway. It's a place over in Portland. North Portland where young women who have, well, we'd call it emotionally disturbed, but at that time they were adjudicated delinquents in that they'd been through the court system and they were sent mm.
0: to Villa St. Rose.
1: And it was run by Sisters of the Good Shepherd. So psychology and this call to something deeper religious, And I think, you know, if there were, were, had been a lot of different options for this kind of work, other than going into religious life, I might have. But at this point, it was the combination that drew me. So I graduated from Seattle U and entered the Sisters of the Good Shepherd in 61, I don't know, 61 or something. And their work was these huge, big residential programs with adjudicated delinquent gang oriented, tough, tough, tough girls, high school girls. And um, so that's how I started my sort of, or or at least midway, that was my formal entry into some kind of work with trauma and neglect and whatever. Now, at that point in the 60s, we didn't even, well, the nuns didn't even know to ask the kids if they'd been sexually abused you know because yeah. we didn't even know we're ta- I'm talking about incest now right. you know we did things around rape and around those kinds of things that were clearly adult to adult kinds of issues oh. but in terms of childhood sexual abuse we we didn't, that wasn't didn't enter our, but we had a lot of lay staff so the girls would tell the lay staff about their incest what
0: does lay staff mean
1: it means non nuns you know, oh, I'm sorry. That's that's oh re- So gosh. people, you know, were hired. We hired a lot of people. In fact, we had a lot of we had social workers and psychologists and whatever. And of course that they're the ones that would get the message. So we started looking at wait, maybe there's something we need to do here. Now that was early sixties oh with my sexual abuse. God,
0: I can't even and what do you think? So this is a random question. Why do you think that um those women were were comfortable telling the lay staff and not the nurse, because they well had I think the sp- I the think
1: space. the space mm. because it was confined I don't this is a judgment I don't know totally yeah but because we, they were confined and they were focused on a whole different way of being in the world not only physically but emotionally and mentally and And probably were getting, even though they're fighting every step of the way around what was going on in the system, there was a part of them that was going, well, maybe, maybe not. They also loved the nuns, a lot of them, most of them. But you didn't tell holy people about this kind of thing. So I think what happens with, with, and I think this happens today, is that there's a lot more opportunity, but in the sense, it's timing. It's about timing and when people discuss or reveal the, their deepest, darkest secrets, mm-hmm. and whatever those are, you know, it comes out in a comfortable setting where they feel safe, where they feel protected, mostly. Absolutely. And or in a setting where they're desperate, you know. Um, so I think that a lot of that, and I don't think many, I can't say that, you know, everybody revealed or disclosed their abuse. I just mean that's where it started—that that they started right. talking about it for the first right. time. And then, of course, even the lay staff, even the, the professional staff, didn't know what to do with it because it was so early on that nobody was talking I think about in the it.
0: 60s, like that yeah, was absolutely. Nobody
1: like was. Absolutely. Nobody was ever talking about it. No, you know, no. So anyway, I think we all just handled. They didn't tell us. <laughs> the 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 uh, professional staff didn't tell us that that the kids were saying this until years later, and uh, and uh, we didn't know the difference. And so, I think what happens though, like I just said, I think that that people who've been, especially young women who've been traumatized at a very early age, or even not so early, find their ability, these kids were finding their confidence, they were finding their support, and they were finding their ability to be able to move in another direction, you know. And so I think that was the healing piece. Whether they ever really talked long-term, which they didn't, about their early sexual abuse, or that we knew anything about post-traumatic stress, we never even heard of that. Oh, that was not, yeah. So... um, Uh, I think that was more the setting and their first time of having people around them that, you know, they could trust in a regular routine that whatever. Now, I'm not saying that in those situations, things were all peaceful. They never were peaceful. I mean, we had attacks, we had runaways, we had people, you know, on getting, going home and getting on drugs and having to talk them down and all this kind of stuff. So it was a big, wide thing. Oh, as yeah, yeah. Sexual abuse was way out here on right. that. Right. And you're
0: talking. I mean, essentially, it's dual diagnosis of stuff that back then or or triple or (laughs) triple. Yes.
1: Yes. And uh, for sure. And because we were getting gang kids from Chicago,
0: when you know
1: before gangs were popular. I mean, they were people never heard of gangs in the '60s or the same kind of gangs. These were were usually a lot uh, ethnic. So did
0: you? How long were you there?
1: Well, I was. So I was in St. Paul. I opened a home for. Uh, Teen parents, teen moms, which we called uh, unwed mothers at the time, unwed mothers, Yes. Uh, in Dubuque. And then I was in Spokane, where we were starting in Spokane, which would have been late 60s. This is all in the 60s, so late 60s to talk about some kind of early disruption childhood stuff that affected kids later on more than we had thought, and that this was a significant reason for their behavior, you know, that was related. And
0: at this point, you were a nun.
1: I'm still a nun, yes. I'm a nun all the way through the 60s and leave from Omaha, from Girlstown in Omaha, Nebraska on this, when I'm, uh, in 1971.
0: Okay, okay, so when you, you went from, what I'm hearing you say is you went from Seattle to... No,
1: from, from uh, uh, St. Paul, I'm sorry, okay. entered the convent in St. Paul. Uh, oh,
0: yeah, that's right, okay, I missed, yeah, I'm, I'm following, and then you went to Spokane.
1: Let's see, where did I go from St. Paul? Just no, I went with, to Dubuque. Okay. I went to Dubuque and opened a place for, for teen parents, and then I went to Spokane. What did, I can't remember. Did you experience... It what? was the other way around. You're right. I was in Spokane and then I went and then you went to, went to Dubuque, Dubuque and then to Omaha.
0: Did you experience, like, how did, when you told people what you were doing at this time in the 60s and what you were experiencing, or if you did, I guess I should ask, did you tell people your, your, your support systems, you know, your friends, your family? and what kind of reactions
1: did you get from others well i other than my family i would think mo- my ongoing daily support system were the people who i worked with and lived with yep. and we all did the same thing so, you were just so in it, all, it, in it was mo- which is also the, the wisdom that i gained uh. because i always had this generational thing of old nuns who'd worked with these kids forever who would tell us stuff and and you know, and then the people around me, and then people who were good at this, and people who were good at that. So I had a wealth of information on how to work with emotionally disturbed young women.
0: Right, you know. and so then you're finding yourself saying, "Hey, this is this early childhood trauma is affecting." Is behavior. affecting
1: behavior. That was in the '60s, so we yeah. started looking at that. Then in '71, I left the convent, and. Why? Oh, that's a whole other story. You know, I mean, it just depends. There are many prongs to it. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I left. And uh, I actually went on sabbatical to sort of sort it out. And halfway through my sabbatical, a friend of mine from college who I'd been kept contact with, he invited me to come to Papua New Guinea to work with the women students. At the University of Technology in Ley, New Guinea. Wow. And I went, and that was the end of the convent. <laughs> so, anyway, I remember I got my dispensation in Papua New Guinea. The Pope sent me a message and said, okay, you don't have to come back, basically. <laughs> so, anyway, um, oh I, gosh. Uh, I went to Papua New Guinea. I was there three years. I was, I was counseling these. Incredible women who were the first college students to graduate in the history of the country, of course, because this had been a British protectorate, and the uh, the indigenous people, you know especially girls were in their villages they weren't so these girls were and they, I remember the thing that was so crazy, and this does have relevancy for abuse, but the thing that was so crazy was that they would graduate and they would become the attorney general or the surveyor general or the head of a department because they didn't new guinea didn't have any indigenous people to be in these huge places and here was a graduate so these girls would come back to me and say i don't know what to do that i'm in charge of this bank you know <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, what I started to say about it is I think that work and some of the work with regular high schools uh, really provided a balance for me of being able to see, well, I don't know if I'd say functional versus dis- dysfunctional, but another, another culture and another element of young people and what they needed to do to survive and how they did that, you know, yeah. which was a balance to me to people who were sort of just trying to get their heads above water in terms of of uh, abuse issues. yeah okay. so that's i can't
0: imagine uh,
1: okay now we're at 71 you see you ask me for my whole it. timeline i, love I know it. but I love it. i'm old so i know i
0: love it it's so uh, okay. incredible Jillian. okay incredible.
1: 71 i left and i st- i volunteered i remember i volunteered in the nights oh no i pay- i got paid but i was part-time at Albertina Kerr, Mm -hmm. Louise Home. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I started out at Louise Home on nights. And I remember the kids thought, oh, good, a newbie. And they would get up at night and say, I'm supposed to call my mother. Or did you know that whatever? And I would give them, I don't still know what this look is, but when it happens they just melt, and so they'd say, "Oh, never mind," and they'd go back to bed because I mean, you know years, thirteen years of working with this this these kids there wasn't a lot that they could do to change my mind about right. what i thought well
0: what is what is Albatina?
1: well Her. Louise home was Louise Holm. Yeah. is uh, Albertina Kerr was the umbrella organization of which one program was Louise Home which was a residential program for young women and eventually some middle school boys. And so then I was hired there full-time as a social worker. And, oh, that's right, I was hired there full-time and was there a year and then went to New Guinea. Mm. So I worked there a year. As a social worker, for these young women who were well a combination of different different uh problems and obviously had early childhood trauma,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I can't remember now i don't rem- i mean we were much more formal and much more uh Worked much harder, much more specifically on the trauma itself, mm. but I don't remember. I don't remember how we did that. I don't right. remember the name of the the uh, particular program right. at that right. point in time. Yes. But anyway, something. And they continue. They're big now. Albertina Cur oh, a yeah. big, big place. Anyway, um, so I was there. Then I went to New Guinea, and I said that. And then. I came back from New Guinea and decided to go to graduate school. I came back from New Guinea to go to graduate school. I came back with a friend who had hired me there, and we both came back to Portland to go to graduate school at Portland State in Anthropology to get a master's degree. I had wanted to go to the University of Hawaii, and it hadn't worked out. I wanted to go to their, you know, Pacific studies, and probably would have then just hung out in the South Pacific for whatever. But um, so I got through my first year, and I thought, I don't want to do a second year. So I took the money that I had had, and my friend and I went to Europe. (laughs) Spent it all and stayed there for three months. And uh, then we came back, and I thought, oh, I guess I better get a job. And uh, so I went to work at Waverly Children's Home because one of the uh, social workers there. I'd known Clearback back in the Good Shepherd, actually, when I was a nun. So she hired me. They hired me. And I was, I started out in a position that was a center manager. And I say this because Re- Re- Waverly Children's Home was middle school. And it was predominantly boys. And this was a new experience for me. And this is 70s? This would have been 75, yes. And uh, it was a new experience for me to work with middle school boys. So ultimately, I was in the center manager position, which the hours were 3 in the afternoon to 11 at night. So it was basically the non-programming time for whatever, and this was the time when all the stories would come out. This was the time that kids, you know, you'd be hanging out with kids at, you know, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock in the evening, and it'd be kind of dark out and whatever and warm inside and whatever, and kids would start telling. That's not the only time, but that I heard. I started to hear a lot of stories then. Yeah,
0: it's connection time. It's like dinner and Yeah, out yeah, and chill right and now
1: and we don't want to go to bed yet, so right. we'll talk so we don't have to, you know, whatever.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I started hearing this and I kept thinking, "Boys, there's nothing for boys, for God's sake. We're talking 1975. Boys who've been abused are not talking about their... Even emotional abuse, they're not talking about. And they're certainly not talking about abusing other kids. You know, they're not talking about that at all. They don't even get it, in some cases, that it was abuse. Oh, you I, know,
0: That's still true.
1: Yeah, that's still true. Yep. Right. That's still the last hurdle, I think. But anyway... So I started a program. I, I in the in the Good Shepherd, I became quite. Uh, what would you call it? Focused on group work. We did groups all the time, all the time. When I did the 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 uh, place in uh, Dubuque the, for teen mothers, we had a group every day for kids, girls to decide about their their upcoming child. Every day they talked about the pros and cons and what it would mean and whether they'd keep their baby or not or whatever. So and in those those situations back then in the 60s some of their early childhood trauma came out, you know. Oh,
0: yeah.
1: in those groups, yeah, they would talk about it a little, but you know, we didn't make a we didn't make connections at those times, you know. Okay, we need to talk about that. Okay, you've talked about it. Now we need to talk about this, you know. That's right. that's yes. kind of the way it happened. Right. And so, uh, anyway, so I decided these boys needed something. So I started a group at Waverly and a referral from the different programs. And I didn't know what I was doing, so I decided that I would do activities. I decided the way to get kids to talk was to get them involved in activities. So I started doing an activity every every time, every week when we'd meet. And then we'd have some kind of a discussion, whatever, and then, and sometimes they'd talk about intimate things, and sometimes they wouldn't, and it didn't matter, but they came to this group. I named this group Super Kids, and I wrote a program called Super Kids, the Boys' Group About Abuse in desperation, and it had 50 activities in it, and those activities were all things that I'd learned flying by the seat of my pants, like, what do we do now? Oh, okay, let's do this one, you know. So, uh, that became very popular in residential programs.
0: How did you, did you market that to residential programs?
1: I mar- Well, sort of, yeah, we marketed it there, and then at Portland Public Schools, they all had a copy of it, so we marketed it to them. and. Um, so that was my first sort of uh, attempt at some kind of a program, you know, an ongoing program that would work for this kind of issue and Super Kids was more about getting kids to talk it wasn't i don't even I don't have a copy of it anymore, but I don't remember that it wasn't about kids telling their stories, meaning talking about abuse or whatever. But I, but it did a lot to help kids see their abusive behavior because kids would call them on it in the group. So they were able to see from other kids, wait a minute, I guess I, you know, or yeah, I'm so strong and I just, you know, call that, that girl stupid and a cunt and so therefore I'm a big wheel, you know. Well, then they had to answer to five or six other boys. And that was a whole different story. So there were some very positive things that happened in that very new group that we didn't know what we were doing. In the meantime, I became the director of shelter care, which was a program for kids coming right out of crisis, being removed from their homes, being taken out of group homes, whatever, in crisis. So you can imagine that all we were hearing then was sexual abuse stories and abuse stories and whatever. So I went off to the University of Washington for a, I don't know, a very brief three-week uh, class, triage class on child sexual abuse. And that was 1978, maybe, the first indication and that was because the government had decided that drug and alcohol issues were related to child abuse, and particularly child sexual abuse. So they had found some money to develop these programs where people would come together like a protective services person, a psychologist, a residential program, case where you know, a triage that would be then the people who would work with these kids when they went back to their community. So that was what I went to. And so then when I came back, I hooked up with Children's Services Division and all kinds of places like that. And we and did a lot of work specifically in groups with child sexual abuse. And uh, then from there, Went to an outpatient program at Waverly. I never left Waverly. I just kept moving around, um, uh, where again I was seeing young women. My friend Annette Selmer was working with adults molested as children at Lutheran Family Services, so I decided to take the younger ones because she wasn't. It was hard for it was hard for a 50 year old woman to be in with a 20-year-old woman. I mean, it, sometimes it didn't work very well. So we started doing young adult, so 18 to, say, 21, 22 at Waverly. Started the Child Sex Abuse Treatment Providers Program, uh, she and I, and said, we need to be able to talk about this. I mean, how are we going to know what we're We don't know what we're doing. And so we sent out flyers to social workers and therapists, who we thought would be doing this kind of work, right. or, or coming, yes. in it. and we I think we sent out 20, and we got 20 people to the meeting. I mean, people were just desperate, because they had no so idea. They were no thinking idea. the same thing you were. Yeah, they were like, we but we they had no idea what they were doing, yeah. So we started the child sex abuse treatment providers, and uh, met once a month, and it cha- it was interesting to see how it changed its focus all the time. You know, yeah. it because it becomes something different as the whole issue evolved. And, you know, what was it about telling your story that was so sacrosanct? And about timing issues. When do you tell your story? And whether you, as a, as a therapist, push or whether you sit back and wait. Um, it was easier to do stories in group because it was kind of a criteria is at some point while you're in this group you're going to tell your story it was no pressure to do it but other girls would start telling their stories and so it became more of a thing to do than than people were finding on a one-to-one you know getting people to tell their stories was much more difficult and then we get the families in or relevant people you and sometimes confrontations with perpetrator Oh. You know, there'd be sessions like that. I mean, it was a, it was a oh very inclusive whatever, whatever. And then, um, so, we did that for a while, and then I decided this is ridiculous. People aren't going to come to Waverly Children's Home, especially, oh, I was doing high school kids, too. And they, I thought, they're not, they could be out with their boyfriend. Why would they come to Waverly Children's Home to talk about something that is very scary and that they don't want to talk about? Yes. So I said, we've got to do this in the schools. So this is when we developed Chrysalis. And Chrysalis was a program that was in all of the public schools, of uh, the Portland public schools, and a few of the like Gresham and a few of those. Um, And it started in, let's see, we got a five-year grant. Oh, we hooked up with drug and alcohol again in the Portland Public Schools. And so between, they got the money. And so we did this five-year grant and created this program from the experience we had weekly working with the public school kids. And um, uh, then I retired. Amen. (laughs) <laughs> yeah that's
0: like so many lives
1: yes and that was only ninety nine, nineteen ninety nine. 1999 so we're talking 20 more years so the interesting i'll give you one more interesting dynamic this program i stayed with it for five years it started in 95 i i think i um I actually, in fact, retired in 99 to take care of my mother. And then I hadn't finished this book. I hadn't mm. finished the, writing it. So I went back for, back and forth for a year getting this finalized. Well,
0: what was the mission of that?
1: What was the mission of this? Mm-hmm. To get kids talking about abuse in their lives. All kids? All high school girls.
0: High school girls.
1: We didn't do any boys. I did my stint with the boys when they were younger. Right. No, this is a school-based group for high school girls with a history of physical, sexual, and or emotional abuse. That was the goal. And we would get a lot of girls in on physical abuse or emotional abuse, you know. In other words, they'd get referred from their teachers or whatever because they'd asked to be in the group because we said it was an abuse group. Well, we didn't even say that in some cases because we didn't want the rest of the school to know. So right. the, 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 shame the, the counselors yeah. had to figure out how to Navigate. refer yes. kids. And there was a counselor usually, a school counselor in every group that we did. So we had the therapist come in and the school counselor and they led right. it together, which was great because that trained the school counselor. Right, so so anyway, I have to tell you this one last story. Okay. so about two years. So I finished the five years, and then I left with a very fragmented uh, program in the schools. There wasn't any real direction, and there were a few therapists, and there were whatever because we didn't have any money, you know. So the money was over. So then I heard that Waverly t- decided to pick it up, and. Uh, it had a research component to it because it was connected to Portland Public, I mean, to drug and alcohol, federal, federal mm-hmm. grant. Oh. So it had to have a research component, which saved its life. Because what happened is that Waverly picked it up, and then about two years ago, I or a year ago even, I had a call from a woman who said, hi, this is, I don't remember her name now, and I'm in charge of the Chrysalis Group. And I said, you're what? She said, I run, I do the chrysalis group. I said, chrysalis is still working? That was 20 years ago. She said, oh, yeah, we're doing really good. We're whatever, whatever. Using the same book. It's
0: incredible. I know. Absolutely. Your entire story. (laughs) I thought, well, I thought this was
1: incredible, that there was some kind of um, basic... Underlying concepts that we need in order to deal with this issue, regardless of how early or how late or how young, it's it's all about some basic underlying things. And the terminology changed. In fact, uh, they did a they did a lifetime achievement award for me this last year at Waverly, and uh, they kept talking about. I think this is it, infused trauma, in, in, Mm. it was like, I thought, what does that word mean? Oh, trauma-informed care, informed trauma.
0: Yes, informed (laughs) trauma, yes, trauma-informed care.
1: I don't know, I thought, what in the world does that mean, you're now informed about trauma? I, don't, I, I thought, it's yes. so, so funny how it the is terminology how it all drank. changes, but yes. you, were,
0: you were actually doing that your entire life.
1: Yes, what, what, I, what, I, um, what I learned uh, was that we also got into, like I said, we had these formulas. The kids would, would tell their stories, they would do this, they would whatever. Um, And then we would listen and, you know, I had heard so many stories and horrendously horrible, horrible, horrible stories that it became hard then to determine where the pinpoint was that the kid was having the most trouble resolving.
0: Because there was so much.
1: Because, well, and because of mine. Because right. my my head was going okay, the seven and the seven, and you know you put a you put kind of a cellophane thing between you and the person, so you don't it doesn't impact you as much, and yet you're listening. But to be able to listen for the things, and it would be very different. It'd be have something to do with abusing their dog, maybe, right, or something. The way to do, it transforms itself. Yeah, the way into... the way it makes them. Hooks them into feeling totally incapable of managing in the world. Basically, that's yeah. what trauma is. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, you get into a thing. I mean, especially in a group, you know, and right. you're hearing the kid. It helps in the group because other group members are clarifying yes. that, that person for you. So that yes. helps. But generally, you know, you have to really find the peace that's hooking them, that's still got them stuck. So you have somebody in therapy for weeks, and they've told their story for a long time, and yet there's something still that isn't resolved. And that's that's the piece that I think we tend to forget about. I mean, it's sort of like sex abuse is a very sensationalized kind of thing, and it's really big now with the Me Too movement and all this kind of thing. And I am thrilled that kids are talking about and young people or older people are talking about, you know, abuse that happened to them long ago. And yet at the same time, uh, I don't know that we have any more of an answer to how we respond to it. That's what I need to say. Whether you're a therapist or a friend or the mother or the whatever, I don't know that we're any clearer with that. And yet, I have to say, I've been out of the field for a lot right, of time. Right, of course.
0: Right, but I think I think we're that's what we're that's why I'm doing this podcast. Yes, is and that's why you're doing why, this. What do we do, and how do people deal, and you know what? My question, I had a question for you. Is this is a big question because it's a little bit philosophical, but. Um, what does a society look like that, that, that is full of believers? Mm, full like, of believers. Like, think about the world as the opposite, you know? Um, because I can't, you verbatim, single handedly looked at children of all kinds oh, of people, tiny first graders. And believed that. Mm-hmm. And that, all those people, I don't even know how many people that you touched in that kind of way but the fact that they were able to look at you joanne and tell that tell you what they went through and you believed them Mm -hmm. is so huge because there's twice three times quadrupled the amount of children that didn't get that You know, because they weren't in the right space. They weren't timing all the things. They didn't have the resources. Well, or they got things. it much later. Or they got it much later. Much and my later. hope is that they did get it much later.
1: Well, and they got it after they ruined two or three relationships. Or themselves, and Or themselves, selves. Or they or, they did a suicide attempt or right. whatever, and they're still alive today and thriving. Yep. But they had to wait a long time right. to get there.
0: So what does it look like in a world of... Drug if and we alcohol. All, if we all believe... What does our society look like?
1: Well, that's...
0: It's unheard of in a way. Well, <laughs> no, to...
1: because if we all believed, then we wouldn't have it, it wouldn't happen. Because if, if uh, pedophiles believed
0: mm-hmm.
1: in, the, in the people, that, in the kids that they were dealing with, or if dads believed in the whatever, or if a priest believes his altar boy is, you know, is incredible, then it wouldn't happen in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, if after it happened, what, some magical wand came down and people, and I, well, I mean, it would be an empathetic world is what it would be. Right. But I don't know how, I can't, I can't, I can't even imagine. My, Isn't it crazy? You know. I've been
0: thinking about this. Like, what is it, is it, is it, what does that look like where everyone's leaning It would look hearts?
1: the same as, the, as a world without war. Right. Or a world without, you know. With
0: compassion. Yeah.
1: And a world without chaos. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's just part of the chaos it in the home.
0: It's part yeah. of the dark. Where there's light, there's dark. Mm-hmm. Where there's dark, right. there's light. Right. Wow, Joanne. <laughs> wow. I really enjoyed my time with you. It was such an honor to meet you and you're an inspiration to every single person I can guarantee listen that listen to this. Um, for Joanne's nonprofit, uh, she picked Rose Haven, which is here in Portland. And Rose Haven is a day shelter and community center serving women, children, and gender diverse people experiencing the trauma of abuse, loss of home, and other disruptive life challenges. They are amazing. I'm a huge fan of Rose Haven, Rose Haven as well. Um, and as always, my nonprofit is Rahab Sisters. They are doing amazing things, uh, they are growing. And um, I am so pleased to watch their growth, to just helping so many women in the community be better and offer resources. Uh, together, we can do it. Together, we can do it. And when you hear stuff like Joanne's story, when you hear someone talk about the things that they did, especially during that time, we're going through the same thing right now, right? We're going through the same thing where we want truth and keep joanne's story in your back pocket because to me she's like with me now and i'm like if she can do it if she can do these things that were so hard and it's so insane to think about what a renegade she was you can do it too you can renegade your way and shake the trees and 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 not stop to help right that's what we need as community we need each other Again, thank you so much for listening. And if you have a story, please feel free to reach out to me. Let me know that you have one and we will get something coordinated and get you recorded. Follow us on uh, WBY pod on Instagram, Facebook, all the things. And until next time, please uh, keep your head up. Serve your community. Be a renegade. Be the Joanne. Be the Joanne. I love you. Thanks for listening.